Hello, I'm Kevin Howlett. Welcome to a very special Ace podcast on the sound of the R&B hits. I'm with uh, Ace co-founder Roger Armstrong, and we're going to talk about the way that uh, this album is being presented. There are 14 original tracks from the LP on Stateside, released in May 1964. And Roger and I have put together 14 additional tracks to go with it. We'll explain why in a little bit. We first talked about this album, Roger, seven years ago, 2013. I'd written a book called The Beatles' BBC Archives. The Beatles had recorded for the BBC and for Parlophone lots of R&B covers. And uh, in my book, I wanted to have wonderful photographs of those original records that the Beatles would have heard. And uh, you helped me out very much with your record collection and some friends in the Ace family also brought in some records and I had some records too. And you mentioned this album to me then. I hadn't heard of it, The Sound of the R&B Hits. And this is a very personal release for you, Roger. Can you explain why? Yes, indeed. Uh, when I was a mere child of about, when was I? I was pushing 16 at that point. Big Beatles fan, but also with an older brother. Uh, so I had, um, I feel like, a grounding in earlier music, right back to rock and roll. He was four years older, so he was pretty primed for the 57, 58 rock and roll scene, 56, that period. So, you know, we were big Buddy Holly fans. We liked Elvis, uh, we liked Little Richard a lot. So we'd I'd kind of grown up through that and then we kept going. He was a big music fan and we kept going right into the um, early 60s period where we were buying the girl group records and Proto Soul from that period. One of the records we bought was um, Shop Around by the Miracles when it came out on London Records uh, in what was it February 61. So I remember going in those days in Belfast, you had to, uh, sometimes you had to go and order the record. And I remember going down to, I'm pretty sure it's a shop in Queen's Arcade after school one day, said to the guy, have you got this Miracles record on London? And he said, no, but I can get it. And it was there the next afternoon, sort of brought in from the warehouse in Liverpool by boat. So, you know, we just liked the record. And in those days, of course, uh, when you bought a single, you've played both sides to death. So as much as shop around, I, I was kind of totally aware of who's loving you. So that was really my introduction to Motown without actually being terribly aware of what Motown or Tamla was. So kind of wound forward a bit. We'd been buying that kind of music. And then the Beatles hit and they hit me. I mean, I kind of just was a huge fan. Went to see them 63 and then later in 64. And with the Beatles came out late, what was November 63, and then this record came out, you know, it was only about six months later, and it had money on it, which the Beatles had covered on With the Beatles, and so that was the first flag. The second thing was it had Shop Around on it, but it was by Mary Wells, and that same month that record came out, I would been hearing and I bought My Guy by Mary Wells, which was the first Motown hit in the UK. So it sort of all tied up, and I bought the record. So it, it sort of stuck with me. It's an odd confection, but you know that thing when you buy records when you're much younger, they have a whole resonance about them, that record you buy, especially if you become a heavy-duty collector and you've got thousands of the damn things, you know, it's another record and sometimes you remember when you got it, sometimes you don't. But those early ones really do sort of lodge themselves in the head and when you hear one track playing, the next one sort of automatically comes up, you know. So that's really how I came across the record, and it had stu- the whole record had stuck with me for years. Well, with the LP sleeve, it says uh, that the concept was that they wanted to conjure up the sound that identifies a Tamla Motown hmm. production. Well, in May 64, people really didn't know what a Tamla Motown 
production was. They, we, we have to remind people that uh, Tamla Motown music was radical underground music in 1964. And it, it, when the Beatles were doing it in 1963, there was a, you know, nobody would have heard the original of You Really Got a Hold of Me or Please Mr. Postman well, at that time. Yeah, not nobody. I mean, the people who did hear it were the Dave Goddens and, and my current business partner, Trevor Churchill, and bunch of guys like him, Norman Joplin. You know, there were the proselytizers out there. Yeah, when I know. say nobody, I mean, apart from about 100 aficionados <laughs> This is correct. A small but powerful yeah. handful of people, many yeah. of whom went on into the music business or journalism or whatever, you know. So, no, they were the, they were the key people who kind of brought Motown and many other fantastic American soul labels into Britain. So, Johnny Come Lately's like me, were just sort of, you know, we like the noise it made, you know, if you like the music, it, no real sort of knowledge about its background. And so I think it said on the sleeve it was from Detroit, so fair enough. But in a sense, those kind of things and the idea of American music being regional didn't really kind of register with somebody like me, though Dave and Terriver and all those people were already sort of studying it pretty much, you know, almost taking an academic view. It was not played on the radio in the years up to May 64, which this album is covering. Hmm. You could hear it on Luxembourg, but on the BBC, hardly ever would you hear a, a Motown record. I think when the Beatles covered Please Mr Postman for their first radio broadcast in March 1962, which was well ahead of them having a record released on Parlophone, they, they performed Please Mr Postman. It was probably the first time that song was ever heard on the BBC. It may well be the first time a song associated with the Motown label was heard on the BBC, I think. It was so... <laughs> far ahead to do that that yeah. song you know and, and as you mentioned you you bought uh, shop around on london american hmm. it was fairly short-lived motown releases on that label as was the case then on fontana the fontana released just four singles of motown that's right but there was a, a more concerted effort when oriel picked up the licensing for motown for 12 months hmm. they released 19 singles seven albums in the space of 12 months sure that seemed hopeful. I mean, Barry Gordy, of course, was determined to try and his, make his label successful outside of his market in, in America. And he was aware of Luxembourg, wasn't he? I've heard an interview where he talks about, yes, people used to listen under the bedclothes to Radio Luxembourg and then tell each other at school about what they'd heard and, and, and how important that was. Did you ever hear the Luxembourg show? It was called The Big O Show, presented by Paul Hollingdale. I might well have. I mean, I don't remember hearing it. I can't remember the Deca ones because they had that that sort of DECCA sort of intro thing going for them. But I, you know, I'm almost certainly would have heard. Oh, I was an absolutely avid Radio Luxembourg listener, you know, with, with phasing sound and everything. Um, it just sort of somehow or other, I think, listening to Luxembourg back in those days. I, mean, I was in Northern Ireland, so it was that bit further from it. But hearing it back in those days, it gave you a feeling that there's this exotic music coming from across the distant planet, you know. It really added a certain aspect to the sort of, uh, if you like, sort of the, the fact that a lot of this music we were listening to was so, in, especially in the earlier days, so in contrast to what the, 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 the diet we were getting on, on regular daytime and weekend radio, you know, and, and the sort of whole anodyne, aspect of of british pop music in those days so this stuff just sounded so remarkable it's coming into my mind that i think i've heard john lennon or read john lennon say that in many ways when he was trying to achieve a sound of a record he had in his 
back of his mind the way he heard a record on Luxembourg. So that kind of phasey sort of sound that you would get. And, uh, and as you say, your favourite record would inevitably fade out for about 10 seconds yeah. and then fade back in again. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the time of this release, May 64, that was the month that uh, Mary Wells, my guy, at last, <laughs> a hit record for Motonist in the UK. <laughs> But also, uh, in doing the research in writing the sleeve notes for this, which I was delighted to do because it was done during lockdown, and what a wonderful, wonderful distraction to the horrors of the world, listening to this Motown music and finding out everything I could about these tracks. I found, looking back over old music papers, that uh, Record Mirror were the first pop paper to publish a rhythm and blues poll, and that was in the edition of 25th of April 1964. So... You know, just ahead of this LP coming out. And it's really interesting to look at the poll because on the one hand, you have the kind of Chicago blues of Muddy Waters, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, that uh, contemporary groups like the Rolling Stones were reviving that material. But on the other side of things, you had this more sophisticated contemporary R&B. It was called R&B, not soul still at that point, I believe, Sure. of the Motown acts. Um, so you had these two elements of, of rhythm and blues breaking through. And uh, I noticed at the head of the article, it says, Rhythm and blues in Britain is much bigger than anyone suspects. So it, it was starting to get outside of that hundred people that we've just uh, talked about. It was the word was being spread, and so th- there were a number of other factors in in the way that, uh, say, a label like Motown and its artists were beginning to find an acceptance, a general acceptance, weren't there? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think one has to give some credit to the Beatles and the other. British groups who covered this music, you know, I mean, they actually proselytized. They actually went out and said, it's great. You should buy it. You know, I mean, they they, they weren't just doing it as kind of, oh, well, there's a good tune to do. You know, I, I think there was a passionate belief in there, you know, and uh, people like even in the more underground level, uh, like Georgie Fame doing Shop Around, you know, they they sort of, uh, I think they kind of pushed the the idea of Motown through the covers into kind of lots of different areas and into different sort of their own fan bases. And I mean, I certainly picked up uh, a lot of interest in a lot of American music via the cover versions. And hey, that sounds good. You know, Yardbirds doing Smokestack Lightning, you know. Oh, this was done by a man called Howling Wolf. I mean, you see Beatles doing Please, Mr. Postman, You Really Got a Hold on Me and things like that. You, it did sort of encourage you to go out and look and see what the originals were like, you know. So I, I think there was definitely a symbiosis somehow there of, of uh, the, the enthusiasts that we've mentioned, that 100 people, and then sort of this higher profile, these groups covering Motown. And, uh, you know, it's like a lot of the way music used to work with people in this instant age where, you know, you want to hear a record, you switch on your machine and you get to hear it, your telephone and you get to hear it. It was a real act of discovery in those days, which um, really lent the the whole enthusiasm a completely different air because it was a great sense of achievement when you found a record or your mate had bought one and it was really great and you both really liked it a lot. And, you know, there was just this real sense of adventure around music in those days. It wasn't, you know, click your fingers and it appeared kind of thing, you know? Absolutely, yeah. It was sort of like being in a secret society, wasn't it? The code words Absolutely. were these these magical names like the Marvelettes and Marvin Gaye and, and, and names like that. And I know that, um, you know, the Beatles obviously championed this music and I put into the sleeve notes um, a, a reference to the fact that in 1971 there was a New York Times article called The Beatles Portrayal, which... 
said that um, the Beatles had really um, made a exploited black music and John Lennon uh, bashed off on his typewriter a very passionate response the charge was made by Craig McGregor that the group had made money from black American music and hadn't acknowledged the originators and John wrote we didn't sing our own songs in the early days they weren't good enough but the one thing we always did and he underlined this always did was to make it known that these were black originals we loved the music and wanted to spread it in any way we could, emphasised. Many kids were turned on to black music by us. It wasn't a rip-off, it was a love-in. And I've been fortunate to uh, meet Smokey Robinson a a couple of times, and he confirmed that. He said, um, yeah, they were the first white group of that magnitude who had said, yeah, we listen to black music, and black music has influenced us, and we love it. So, Yeah, never mind, never mind in a way, the the saying about the Beatles making money off... uh, uh, the Motown uh, sound. I'm sure Barry Gordy wasn't exactly um, upset about the income stream from, from <laughs> the publishing from the sale of Beatles records and Stones records and all these different beat groups who were covering his songs. Yeah. Uh, you, know, quite, you know, the truth of the matter was, even though Motown were having hits in America at the time, I mean, really, the sort of sale of the black American records were, weren't were really up there to the level of the white stuff because there were just more people buying them. And um, so, you know, I, I've never read anywhere where, uh, you know, any of these black entrepreneurs were terribly upset about people covering their songs because they still got paid. Yeah. Now, the sound of the R&B hits LP, mm. as we've briefly mentioned, is a bit of an esoteric track listing. It's not got the, the obvious versions that, you know, if we'd have travelled back in time to May 64, we would have included on the LP. I don't, I don't quite know how the compiler was working. Sure, you've got Money by Barrett Strong on there, which is on with the Beatles, but you don't have You've Really Got a Hold on Me by the Miracles or Please, Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes. You do now <laughs> on, on the CD album. Yeah. And the Do You Love Me is actually by the Miracles, not by the Contours that exactly. you on there. And there's the two strange covers, non-Motown, there's Mockingbird, off the Martha and Vela's Heatwave album, and uh, Dream Baby, the Orbison song by the Marvelettes from their kind of Hits of 62 album. Just because I've sort of lived with this record for most of my life, it never struck me there was anything kind of out of place about those. I'm quite sure that's heresy to many of the modern Motown fans. But I do think it shows that uh, Motown weren't just kind of working within a vernacular, weren't working within their own group. You know, they kind of saw covering hits as a way of getting out into their audience a bit more you know they're both very decent versions frankly you know and of of their songs you know i i think that that's what sort of was flagged up there i presume that uh because mockingbird has been such a hit for inez fox uh not that long before and and was probably still you know guy stevens was still spinning that one by uh, the time this was compiled which was probably compiled given lead times very early 64. So I presume that's why it was put on there because Mockingbird was sort of, yeah, it was, well, we've got a version of that, let's put that on there, you know. Well, again, um, it was one of those songs that the Cognoscenti knew about. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't a hit in this country and in, no. even then a minor one in 1969, sure. it, it finally but, got into the charts. But but it was one of those hip records to know about and lots of people covered it, like Dusty, yeah, for example. And, may, and maybe he looked at the track listing and went, good Lord, there's, there's nothing that's a hit on here. And uh, thought, oh, there's a cover version of Dream Baby. That was a hit. Let's put that on. <laughs> you know, the, the world of compiling that is Ace Records is a very different beast to a man in, working for EMI in a kind of suit and colour tied type job in 1964. You know, he was sort of oh told to put together some sort of 
confection, if you like. And and he did, and just picked whatever he thought might float, if you like, you know. But that's uh, what makes this album so enjoyable, I think, is you've, you've mm. got this esoteric 14 uh, tracks yeah. where you, you know, you don't get The One Who Really Loves You by Mary Wells. You, sure. you have the Marvelettes singing it. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, over the same backing track, actually. Yeah, but, um, what, but what is on there, which sort of, again, I think when I got this record was a track that really ripped me apart, really thought, God, this is amazing, and probably led me to buying My Guy, was Bye Bye Baby by Mary Wells which to this day it strikes me as just a most remarkable record where Barry got her to sing it so much she shredded her throat. <laughs> may, may I say like a certain Mr. Lennon at the end of the Please Please Me album with Twist and Shout. Yeah. And it had this raw kind of just sort of powerful, visceral quality about it. And I remember playing that record, this album, and that was the one that stood out for me. I thought, wow, that's astonishing, that record, you know. Well, Mary Wells was 17 at the time she was singing yes. that, and they, they did 22 takes of yeah. it. So, Why yes, you she can, ever sang again? <laughs> <laughs> you can really can hear. And, of course, uh, for me, when I first got to hear that, which was many, many, many years uh, later, because mm. I, I was six years old in 1963 when With the Beatles came out, a little bit younger than you. And so I didn't hear these kind of records for, well, till the 80s or even 90s, some of these, these sure. tracks. And so for me, Mary Wells, when I caught up with Mary Wells, it was kind of sophisticated, Smokey Robinson, that Caribbean R&B sound that he was doing for her. And then mm. hearing Bye Bye Baby, it's yeah. remarkable, uh, yeah. absolutely so raw. So and, then, raw. and then, of course, in 64, later in November 64, the Beatles played the King's Hall in Belfast. Uh, which is, was known as an agricultural hall, but it had a mezzanine and they put speakers around it. So actually I got to hear them really because I went to the back being quite short, not wanting to get involved in the riot at the front. But the, the other brilliant thing about that, I couldn't believe it when I saw the lineup, Miri Wells closed the first half. Uh, wearing a blonde wig, which is, <laughs> you know what I mean, to a young lad. It was like, wow, never seen that one before. <laughs> yeah, well, again, shows how much they wanted to champion Motown. Oh, Although, absolutely. of course, she just about left Motown at the time. She had, of the yeah, tour, that's right, yeah. Uh, which was not one of the great decisions in Mary's career. Not really, no. No, but the, some of the, the bonus tracks that we had fun mm. choosing to complement the original Stateside LP I know, for example, that I've Been Good to You by The Miracles, which is the B-side of What's So Good About Goodbye, which mm. was on the original of the Sound of the R&B Hits LP. The Beatles absolutely loved I've Been Good to You. Um, there's a recording that was made in 1964 for a, a radio show called The Public Ear, where George and Ringo had recorded an audio letter to Tony Hall, who was the presenter of the programme, asking the BBC basically to play some of the music that they played at home. And Tony Hall says in the programme, well, I know you're playing this one at home because Tony lived near George and Ringo in, uh, at the time in uh, Green Street. And he played I've Been Good to You by The Miracles. And if you listen to the beginning of that record and then think about Sexy Sadie off the White Album, I think mm. you can see the influence there. Sure. And there are a couple of other things, like uh, the B-side of Money by Barrett Strong is a great track called Oh, I Apologise. Fabulous record, almost doo-wop and funny yeah. and it's feeling so strange swing. We know that that was um, still in the travelling jukeboxes that George and John took with them on tour in the mid-60s, mm. that single. And if you listen to Isolation of the John Lennon Plastic Owner Band album, particularly the middle sections, mm. you'll, you'll see again there must be an influence from Oh, I Apologise yeah, on John. Sure. And the other one that I noticed was um, I Want a Guy by the Marvelettes. If you listen to that, 
and then listen to There's a Place off the first Beatles album, Please Please Me, you can hear that kind of melisma at the beginning of every verse. Mm. And, uh, and, and John said, yeah, I was trying to do a Motown black thing. Yeah. Uh, when he talks about that song. So there's a definite influence there in the yeah, song. And there's writing. those breaks as well. Both of them have that yeah, stop in them. That's, that's what I mean, yeah, know, yeah. Kind of... But yeah, it's the way they kind of reinvented those Motown records is really interesting because, of course, the Motown records were sophisticated um, far more than those early Beatles records because oh, yeah. they had strings and the horns on sure. them often. And so they kind of rearranged them just for a you know a four man beat group, yeah. and that that's the way they're kind of crafting their sound at the time. Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that money was the sort of core Motown song. I mean, when you look at the, the, the we put a little in the booklet. There's a little list of uh, the early selection of the pre May '64 beat group cover versions, you know, and sort of about a third or more of them are money. It was a perfectly decent stomper to do, you know, so it got done quite a lot, you know. As you've mentioned, the, the booklet, uh, it's just a beautiful booklet. So mm. many great illustrations of the original records, the Oriole American releases of Motown uh, yeah. songs. So you can well, see Mike and the Modifiers, I Found Myself a Brand New Baby. You can see that very rare Oriole 45. 45. Uh, talking of that, I mean, some people may find that and the Valadiers odd choices. I mean, in some ways, when I was picking those, I mean, and you, you both of us worked in this together, but I kind of put those on there. Two reasons. One, that meant that the second half of the album kind of had this odd other side in a way that was similar to the first which was you know the two kind of unusual tracks these those were two of the earliest white groups that were on Motown they were slightly atypical of the rest of the stuff also if you really want to get those records even on CD these days you've got to go and buy the uh, the very wonderful and elaborate box sets of all the complete Motown singles that Harry Winger put together for Universal so it's a way of getting those two tracks out to people who may not be able to or wish to splash out that amount of money. And also sort of a, in sort of listening through them and doing them, uh, realised that the Mike and the Modifiers could well have been a beat group from Sheffield in 1964. It's just got such a beat group sound. And in a remarkable coincidence, came out in this country on Oriole exactly the same month as Love Me Do came out. So it was almost a proto-beat group. I'm not saying it in any way influenced the beat groups. That's so rare. But, you know, nobody would have particularly had it in those days. So really that was just sort of break the second side, you know, instead of it just being all the hits, which are many of which are available readily on Motown compilations. It was just to put a couple of uh, slightly different things on there and sort of people could access them. I um, push for the inclusion of a couple of Marvin Gaye tracks. Uh, hmm. Hitchhike and Pride and Joy are on that. And it's a really surprising omission that they didn't include Marvin Gaye on the sound of the R&B hits. But those two tracks, uh, I found a tape from May 64 of the Beatles introducing their favourite records at the time. And, and Paul picked both those tracks uh, when he was asked to introduce some favourite records of the time. So Marvin Gaye was certainly, again, amongst the congresscenti, <laughs> those hip enough to know Marvin Gaye was a big influence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's worth remembering that, you know, there's 28 tracks on this f fantastic CD, yet... Not one of them has been a hit in the UK, yet it's such a powerful running order. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, those, what we perceive now as, as Motown classics, like mm. Please Mr. Postman and True. Money, and they weren't hits in the, in the UK yeah. at the time. It's staggering, really. It's, and it's interesting, actually, you're talking about Marvin Gaye, that the, uh, of course, the two early covers of the Stones of uh, Motown things were both 
or a hitchhike and kind of get a witness. And I think that showed, you said earlier, this was known as R&B in those days. And, you know, Marvin always sounded to me like he was on the R&B end of the whole thing, whereas the Marvelettes and some of the other stuff was, and even Smokey was on the soul end of things because it had more of a sort of gospel tinge to it, which was really what defined the soul end of things, you know, whereas the, the slightly bluesier end, the rhythm with blues, rhythm and blues. Um, if I know a friend of ours, Jake Porter, who we worked with many years ago for Combo Records, he said that he, he said when, I, when we were kind of starting out, we called it blues with rhythm, mm. and uh, so that's where the whole R and B thing came from. But yeah, so I mean, I think the Stones more appropriately did that, you know. And I think as you say in the notes, I think it was Keith or somebody saying they wouldn't be seen dead, sort of recording some of the more girl group things that the that the Beatles did. Yeah, it's Keith in his book mm-hmm. called Life uh, said, uh, you know, if we'd have tried to play Please, Mr. Postman mm. at the uh, Richmond. Station Hotel. <laughs> <The> end of <laughs> career. would have been lynched. <laughs> it's interesting also to note that of all the songs that the Beatles covered for the BBC and on record, and some of them are really quite obscure, every one of them was released in the UK. And I, and yeah. I know that you and I both get uh, annoyed by this myth that keeps being put out again and again that the reason that the Beatles uh, made it because they had access to uh, American records coming in on American ships into Liverpool. And clearly what was the most essential thing for them was that they had the time and wherewithal to go into NEM's record shop owned by their manager and go through the racks very studiously finding these sure. really interesting records and finding the B-sides of these uh, quite obscure records too. Yeah. So yeah. that's really the core of it. That You mentioned earlier that record shops would order something for you. Other record shops like Epstein's NEMS shop made a point of stocking every single record one so that you one. would find that's it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, they, they stocked a lot. And, you know, one copy at least. And, of course, if they felt it was going to be successful, maybe two or three. Mm. So, and as well as that, they could get records, even in Belfast, as say, you know, my experience with Shop Around. It was an overnight delivery. You know, I ordered it one afternoon and picked it up the next. So, I mean, history lessons apart, Roger, that we've, we've talked about, you know, how difficult it was to hear this stuff and how it wasn't a hit at the time. But leave all that aside, this album, just put it on and enjoy the music. It's just so uplifting and joyous to hear these records one after another. And some of them are quite unusual and not so familiar. Yeah. And, you know, it just leads up to this wonderful climax at the end, the, the last track on the album. Yeah, which is Heatwave by Morrison and Vandellas, which I think is arguably the, the, the launch pad track, I think, for many people. It was the breakout track, if you like, even though it wasn't a hit at the time. And I have several people I know who say that was it for them. You know, they heard Heatwave, they were off, you know. And, you know, people who actually not just sort of, oh, bought Heatwave and thought it was good, but it led to a lifelong passion for the label. And there was just something about that record. It's a, it's like a call to arms, isn't it, you know? Uh, it's, it's such a sort of joyous, kind of wild, exciting record, you know, and I can see anybody that sort of bumps into Motown at that moment in time might well develop a lifelong passion for the label. Well, it was uh, a conversation we had seven years ago, Roger, yeah. about this album, and we're now here at last. Yay, finally, we finally <laughs> the got The CD there. out, and thank you so much for asking me to write about uh, this wonderful music and, and the history of early Motown in Britain. It yeah. was well, thanks an such awful a lot. joy. Thanks an awful lot to you, Kevin, for putting so much work into it. Very much appreciated. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you, and uh, I'm sure we'll find another project soon. I hope so, and thank you, Roger, and uh, just get hold of this album and put it on and dance the night away (laughs) (laughs) all the best 
for more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.